Hey, my name's Josh. I know some of you. I love all of you. I love some of you really just deeply. This is a sweet place. It's sweet to be back. A little update on a church. I like, how do you tell about a church plant? Uh, here's the big thing that parents want to know with their kids. When do I stop paying your bills? And just so you know, our church is no longer financially supported as a church plant because we're on our own financially. So that's a gift. And we kind of beat the, there's like, yeah. So Redemption has plans. They give three years of support. And we just had our second year anniversary, but we're just doing well numbers-wise and people. And so we are now off to support and we're our own uh, self sustaining church, which is kind of a gift. Uh, Here's how I think. I'm much more simple. I think about things like this. Do my kids like my new church? Because they love this place and they were very sad to leave this place and they love church. That's why my family's not here. My kids serve on the communion team. My wife's serving in kids. I want to show you a little picture. This is our staff Christmas party. Staff both paid and we brought in, that is Santa Claus, the man. We got him to come in and give gifts to all our staff kids. But all those kids love our church and that's the core team of people that some of them move from out here, Eastmark, out to plant a church and those kids really love the church. So it's going well. God will have the ultimate say on how faithful we are, but for now, just just know you guys sent off a healthy baby church, and we're growing, and we're starting to learn how to walk, and we just love you guys, and all the support, and all the prayers, and just all the hugs I'm getting today, so it's a, it's a great day to be here, and I get to unpack a bunch of Bible, because uh, Luke told me you got to preach to Isaiah 41 and 42, which we will not do, because that's a lot. It would take Matt the entire time to read, but I'm going to preach... Uh, chunks of this. And here's how I want to start off. Last night driving out here, this morning driving here, I'm listening to the same thing our family listens to all the time. Our kids love it. My wife loves it. It's sports talk radio. It's just what we do. We got four boys. We're all bros. And my wife has been adopted into the broness, and now she listens to sports talk radio. And all they're talking about is this, the Super Bowl. And here's what they're doing. They're just all making their own predictions over, under, on ridiculous stuff, like the tight end, how many catches, over, under, how many runs, well, over, under, over, under. And millions upon millions of dollars are being spent to listen to men and women talk about what they think might happen at 4.30 p.m. today. That's crazy, but that's the world I live in. I've drank the juice, some of you drink the juice. We're all listening to it. You just read the Nicene Creed. It says, God has given us prophets to speak what is true of what has happened, is happening, and will happen. And that's what the book of Isaiah, it's a prophetic book given to the people of God back then and passed down through the ages to us to listen, not to some talking head on a radio show talking about what they think might happen, but a simple man, Isaiah, who was called by God, ordained by God, anointed by God to speak on his behalf on what what did happen, is happening, and will happen for Israel and now for the church. And that's what we're doing. And specifically, the section we're teaching through Isaiah 40, Luke kicked us off down to Isaiah 55, is one long poem. It's poetry. And what is poetry supposed to do? It's supposed to give us images. Redemption is a sound biblical church. Some of you have really great doctrine and you can answer all the questions that need to be answered about Christianity and faith and all that. But some of us need more images about what faith is, what God is doing in the world. And that's what Isaiah is doing. He's giving us images. Here's my big idea for the morning. Very simple. We'll keep it simple on Super Bowl Sunday. I know you're thinking through your recipes and all that. Idols fail, God wins. (laughs) Period. If you're a note taker, here's what we're going to walk through. Three specific images. 
What we're seeing today is this. There's some bad news in here. Matt just read there's good news. And then ultimately there's going to be some surprising news. So that's what we're doing today. Uh, we're going to walk through this. I want to pause and just give our chance, our hearts a chance to sort of enter into this text together. So let's pause and pray together. God, speak to us. You, by your spirit, spoke through Isaiah back then. Speak again this morning to us <clears throat> specifically, not in generalities, but speak to us individually and corporately as a church. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Isaiah 40, here's where we're at. A simple breakdown of the whole book of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters, I'll call them the judgment section. 1 through 39, judgment. 40 through the end, 66 is hope. Isaiah is about judgment and hope. And 40, when Luke opened up yet last week, comfort, comfort is the beginning of the hope message of Isaiah. And now we're in 41. And what is the backdrop? If, if 40 was introducing Israel once again to God who comforts, 41 is now talking about Israel and God and their relationships. And let's just set the stage. Let's read the first three verses together. 41 through three, one through three. Listen to me in silence. So God's saying, shush. I got something to say. Coastlands, let the peoples renew their strength. <clears throat> let them approach and let them speak. Let us draw together near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? That would be Persia, a nation who God is raising up. He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely. By paths his feet have not trod. Stop right there. What's, God's like, let's talk a second about what's going on. Israel, you're, you're in trouble again because you did something dumb. I'm raising up another person from the east. Let's just talk about how this world works. And he's going to tell the same story that he's been telling about how people respond. What is Israel going to do in light of their, this tiny little ethnic minority in the midst of the Middle East and all these countries keep getting raised up and now Cyrus, Persia is no different. How are they going to respond poorly? That's the bad news. They do exactly what they all do. What's the bad news? Let's read verse 5 through verse 7 together. Instead of praying, confessing, worshiping, here's Israel's solution. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. And the craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. You see what's happening there. Cyrus is being raised and then God zooms over to what Israel's doing and they're concocting idols instead of coming to gather and worship and set their hearts and their trust upon Yahweh the Lord. They are over here and you see it's like a group effort. Not a single person's left out. You got all your people together building idols. I love how the message describes this scene here. Here's what he says. The God makers in the workshops go into overtime production. They craft new models of no gods, urging one another, good job and great design, pounding in the nails at the base so that the things will not tip over. It's stupid and it's silly and it's an image God wants us to have for how we deal with life. We go worship non-gods and we construct non-gods and we work together to hammer them down so that they'll stay sturdy with our nails and our tools. You know he's not talking about actual idols for us in this room. 
But the, the majority image God uses for sin in the Bible would be idolatry. Like he talks about we're lawless, we're rebellious. Adultery is one of the more graphic ones he uses. But he uses lots of image. But the thread that goes throughout scripture is at our core we are idolaters. Why does he go so hard after that? Because all those other ones are like kind of surface level sins of a deeper rooted issue. Tim Keller talking about uh, idols and why idols are the thing, not the other things. He talk, gives some example. He's like, for example, cheating on taxes. Let's say a person in this room cheats on their income taxes based off statistics a few of you have. So I'm talking to you. You know who you are in this room. Why does he or she do that? Well, Christians would say because he or she is a sinner. Yes, but why does this sin take this form? Luther's answer would be that man only cheated because he was making money and possessions and status or comfort or, have, or having more of them more important than God and God's favor on his life. Or take lying. Lying is a sin. You should not lie. Let's say a person lies to a friend rather than lose face over something she has done. In that case, the underlying sin is making human approval or your reputation more important than the righteousness you have in Christ. Idols are the deep-rooted thing, and we all build them, and we work together to construct them and nail them down so that they're strong. A simple definition of idolatry, an idol, an idol is anything other than God that you give your ultimate trust, obedience, or love. Ultimate, not we should obey, we should love, and we should trust each other in a variety of circumstances. But ultimate love, ultimate trust, ultimate obedience is an idol. And they're all over in this room. And they're all over in Isaiah's day. And the image he gives is them concocting these idols and powering them down. So what are your idols? I kind of want to be a roaming preacher one day because you can just pop in and just say whatever you want and then dip out the back. So this is like, you know, it's like speed dating. But I just hit 40 the other day. I'm reading this book about how you kind of Kill it in your 40s, so I'll let you know how it goes when I'm 50. Uh, but he, has, he turned the corner, and he's talking about idols, which I didn't expect. I was just expecting like some stretches stuff so my knees didn't hurt as bad. But he's like, here's the deal, idols. And he gives a helpful thing. He says, Thomas Aquinas would limit it to four idols just to help us think through it. And they would say money, power, pleasure, or honor. Money, power, pleasure, honor. Some of you have heard that, especially if you've been around Redemption. Luke's great, teach, Seth's great. They're all great teachers. They're going to talk about idols. They're going to talk about idols. But what are your idols? The guy then says, gives, gives a little game, which I thought was interesting. He's like, what are my idols? Here's the game I play is I list them in reverse order because it's sort of a backdoor way to get to my heart without having to jump right into the deep end, especially for men who don't know how to go deep on anything. It's like, well, what's not my idol? The list is money, power. Pleasure, honor. So the first one that's not mine is power. Like I just have, pastoring is something I have to sort of step into because there's a level of authority and it's like, but it's not my jam. Money, I like it, but I was a math teacher and a pastor. So not a smart financial money-making man. But then it's like, ooh, honor. Like when am I just flinching towards... It's when my reputation and who I am gets poked or prodded or questioned or something there. And then pleasure. What do I love? 
I love to eat, drink, and be merry. And I have a verse to back it up to say, nobody can tell me I can't do that. But there is a limit when pleasure becomes too much. It becomes ultimate. What are your idols? And just like as a dad and as a former youth pastor here, to you parents out there, if you have not told your kids in a variety of forms what your idols are, you're missing a huge opportunity. And you might even be a hypocrite in their mind if you haven't done it yet. I don't care how old they are. They could be adult kids. You could have had to strain. But you can come back and say, you know what? This guy talked about some stuff. And I just want you to know, you know why our house was frantic? Because I had this people-pleasing God inside of me that I could not get rid of. And I'm sorry for how it made me parent. My dad's idol would be money. And he's not a rich man. He runs a multi-hundred-dollar corporation that none of you have ever heard of. And he says, anytime I make a little bit of money doing what I do, God always takes it away because he knows I am not good with the money. It's my idol. I grab. So it's not a rich man's thing or a rich woman's thing. It's a man or woman thing. We all have idols. Now, what is the result of these idols in this story? Look ahead to verse 29 in chapter 41. Here's how Isaiah would describe them. Behold... They are all a delusion, and their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. So just remember that. Next time you think that's the thing that's going to make you happy or give you success or give you status or give you the foundation that your dad never gave you or whatever, picture you going off in a room to nail something down that is described as empty, winded, metal object. While you have the living and true God here to trust and obey and to love. Two things remember this. Remember the severity of the situation. Idols are no joke. It's the thing that's in all of us that's the problem. It's like going to a doctor with a cough. and Deep down you really have cancer. And the doctor sends you away some cough drops. Most of us want church and discipleship to feel that way. Like we don't want to go deep down to the cancer. We want something to fix the surface level stuff. But God loves us too much to give us cough drops. He gives us prophets like Isaiah and churches that call out idols. Remember that. But also remember this image. Just let this image stick with you. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. Picture the best, strongest work men and women in here who build stuff. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it's good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. That's what it looks like to God with our idols. The best we have to offer, nailing it down, knowing that a storm is coming. Cyrus, Persia is coming. And the world is going to destroy our idols unless we give them to God beforehand. That's the bad news is there are very real things called idols. And they're still there. They're still the problem. It's the problem. What's the good news? Isaiah 40 through 55, actually through the end of the book, is a story about hope and good news. Well, what is the good news? He turns the page and gives some glorious images for us to remember as Christians and what we have in Christ. So what is the good news? We've got three little mini images here, 10 and 11, 14 and 15, and 17 and 18. Let's look at this first image, which I'll call victory for the surrounded. So again, he just said, you guys are knuckleheads. Knock it off with the idols. Here's the good news of what God is doing. Fear not, verse 10, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. 
I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. What's happening? He's giving a picture of Israel. This is what your life's going to be like. You're going to be this tiny little group surrounded, but don't worry. All the enemies will perish. I will destroy them all. No matter how scary, I will provide victory for the surrounded. They had Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, like every empire is around them and Israel's still a thing. They were not defeated. Like you can bet on Israel. Like all these sports betting apps. I remember, you know, they started going nuts. What was it? Like a year and a half ago and I just had this sinking feeling like, this is going to provide some pastoral opportunities, I can tell. <laughs> just sign up, you get 100,000 free credits. And I know guys, I'll just speak to the guys, are dumb enough to always think, you know what, I think I, could, I think I could win this one. This is the one. I got this one. And they don't got this one. Ever. Because the betting odds are not good in your favor. However, as I open up scripture, I always bet on God's people. And not because of anything they have proven to be true of themselves. I bet on them because God always says, I'm with them. They are surrounded, but I will provide victory. And we have a much better victory than what Israel had. It's not just foreign enemies coming trying to attack us. It's Satan. Sin and death has been defeated. We were surrounded by all those, and Jesus conquered them. Amen? Like, I don't know, there's a little show called The Chosen. I'm a big fan. I watch it a lot, and I cry a lot because I'm just like, and I just picture the day when the episodes get to it, the cross, and Jesus, who that actor is trying to depict, goes to the cross and says, it is finished. You have victory. No matter how much you've been surrounded by your own sin, suffering, whatever it may be, I have provided victory. And Isaiah is saying, hey, people of God, the idols are stupid. You have a victorious king who fights for you. That's not the only image he gives, though. He gives another one, which I love it here, 14 and 15. Now he's talking about worms that are transformed. Verse 14, fear not, you worm Jacob. It's quite a description, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your redeemer is the holy one of Israel. Behold, I make of you a thresh, threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. What is the image here? It's a worm. You, Jacob, that's Israel, you're a worm. That's not what any of us want to be called. You're a worm. You've never really come up above the surface. You, no one sees you. Like I was doing some research on worms. Pretty interesting. They both have both sexes, male and female, so that's kind of interesting. But other than that, nobody cares. They're tiny. Could take them 100 years if they live that long to travel half a mile. Israel, you can't do much. You're a worm. However... What's the next image? Verse 15, I make you a thresh, threshing sledge, new, sharp, having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. That's just farming equipment that helps with the grain. And I, he's trying to, the greatest agricultural tool they had, he's like, I'll take you from a worm to the greatest of the tools you've ever pictured, so great that they'll be able to crush mountains. What's he saying? I'm taking you from a worm to the he who could crush mountains. 
Translation, I am going to transform you. I don't just defeat the enemies around you and beat Satan, sin, and death and leave you there where you are. I then take you as the worm you are and I transform you. Here's God's promise to Israel through Isaiah. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your redeemer is the holy one of Israel. Fast forward to the New Testament. Here's God's promise to us who have our faith in Jesus Christ. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. What's that mean? No matter where you started, how far behind the eight ball, how much of a hole you dug for yourself in life. Like in this room right now, some of you are in a hole that you created. Some of you have been pushed into the hole. You're a worm. God has big plans for worms like us. He turns graves into gardens. He turns worms into amazing equipment that could crush a mountain. He is bringing good news to us. That's good news. And then finally, another promise, verse 17 and 18. What else is God going to do? When the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. The God of Israel will, will not forsake them. I will open the rivers on the bare heights and the fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry lands a spring of water. What's the image here? Simply verse 17. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, their tongue is parched with thirst. When you just, you don't have it. You just, you're lacking, whatever it may be. One thing that's interesting coming back here is just, Age seems to be winning. We're all getting a little older. Last time I came here, I felt young. I got a bad knee. I just hit 40. Talking to Brazelton and his bad back, it's like, we are pathetic. <laughs> like, no, we're just getting older. And some of you would be like, you watch your mouth, young man. You don't even know yet. <laughs> My dad's like, you wait till you get readers. I can't wait for you to do the... Are you parched? Are you thirsty? The poor, the needy seek water. Isaiah promised his people this. The Lord will answer them. He will not forsake them. And he will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and dry land springs of water. What's he saying? I will provide for you where you think you can't be provided for. And fast forward to the one of the most beautiful pictures in the New Testament is Jesus with the woman at the well. She's there in the middle of the day because she's got a sinful past and she hates being judged and she's probably just mocked all the time. So she goes when no one's going to be there and Jesus so happens to show up there. And she gets a little tit for tat with him about religion. He's like, we can play this game if you want. I can, you know, talk religion. I, I know a few things. But I'd like to talk about you and your husband, or the husband before, or your first husband, or, she's like, who are you? He's like, you're thirsty, that's your problem. And you keep drinking from cups that cannot satisfy. And Isaiah is telling Israel, you're thirsty, and you keep drinking from cups that can't satisfy, no matter how Great your idols look and shiny and important and nailed down they are. You are drinking from something that cannot satisfy. 
Whatever it is, you cannot be satisfied by that. And Jesus tells the woman at the well this. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And that water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. That is good news. There is victory for the surrounded. There's transformation for the worms in here that feel like they can't even get their head above the dirt. He says, I'm doing a work in you. And there is water for the thirsty. That is good, good news. And then Isaiah flips the script now and he brings to us some some surprising news. What is the surprising news in this story? Here's one way we could ask the question. Who is God going to be providing all this great stuff for? So bad news, idols. Okay. Remember back to my big idea. Idols are bad, they fail. God wins. Okay, who does God win for? Like who does he do this work for? Here's one way to answer it incorrectly. Well, the whole world just gets free reign no matter how much we just are clinging to our idols the whole entire time. I live by a Unitarian church now and their message is essentially, it doesn't really matter what any of us think about anything. It's all gonna work out. Well, show me where it's gonna work out. Well, let's open a few different things and sort of put a collage of beautiful things and let's just pontificate. I don't want that. I want something real. Or the answer could be no one. God could have said, actually, I've got this great vision of victory and transformation and provision, but I'm sick of you guys. And he pulls the lever and he's like, I'm out. Or here's the religious answer. Is there's like a select few, the army rangers of obedience and faithfulness and goodness. And there's a bar somewhere, none of us really know what it is, but if you can work and get above that bar, then victory and transformation and provision is yours. And some of us tried that, and that's exhausting. Who is this for? Isaiah doesn't ask that question. Here's what's interesting, he switches it up, and he doesn't ask who is this for, he asks who is God going to provide these things through? Not who it's for, but who is God going to provide these things through? And here's the surprising news. Who is this servant that is going to bring new, good news? And what is this servant like? Let's read together verse 1 of chapter 42 as Isaiah flips the page. And this begins what's called a mini song in this greater song, this greater poem, Isaiah 40 through 45. And now Isaiah introduces a mysterious new character. Verse 1, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Who is he talking about? Because prior in verse, uh, chapter 41, verse 8, which Matt read, the servant up to this point has been Israel. It says in verse 8, but thou Israel art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. And now he's talking about this singular servant, who's been called by God and anointed by the Spirit, who's going to do something mighty. He's like, turn the page. See, up until this whole time, it's been Israel, 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 Israel. You're my servant. Here's Israel's job on this earth, to be a light to the nations. God is not here in the flesh. Israel is here as God's representative on earth to bless the world. 
It's like when I get, one of the best things, my kids are getting a little older, we don't have to pay for date, we don't have to pay for babysitters anymore. Our oldest is in charge. Elijah, what is your role? You are my servant. So I can enjoy my wife for three hours without dealing with you four boys. You are my servant. Israel, you are my servant, God says. Make this world brighter. Be a light to the nations. And they failed, failed, failed. They're off in the dark, nailing idols with the rest of the nations. In chapter 42 says, I got a new servant for you. My spirit's on him. Israel's not done. And somehow this servant is still tied to Israel, but there's a new servant in town. And what is he going to be like? That's the question. Is he going to be like Assyria and Persia and Babylon and Greece and Rome and America and Western civilization who, are, who find this appealing in our leaders? Strong, powerful, Mighty, sure of themselves, can take out any enemy that comes in our way. Just like every empire from the beginning of time has existed, they've existed with this mentality. We must be bigger, stronger, faster, mightier, slicker than the rest. That's how you win. And that's what Israel was waiting on. Somebody big and mighty and strong and smarter. Where's this servant going to come from? And Isaiah says, I've got a servant for you. The spirit is on him. And this is the first time Jesus is described in this poem. So let's listen to how Isaiah wants us to have a first impression of the coming Messiah in verse two. Here's what he says. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So simple man, he will not shout. He will not be rough. He will be gentle with the most dainty, hurting, old, sad, that's who the servant's going to be. Nobody was expecting that. Nobody currently expects that. Nobody longs for that. Like those of you that have companies and you get a resume that comes through and the description is like, John Bellendorf. Let's read about old John Bellendorf. A bruised reed he wouldn't break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Pass. You single people on dating apps. I want to find me a man. Oh, I'm going to read this guy. What's Juan like? He doesn't cry or lift up his voice. A bruised reed he would not break. And a faintly burning wick he would not quench. Nobody wants this. Why? Because we think money and power and pleasure and success and dominance is what this world needs, and it's not. We need Isaiah 42 to, to be here. Just so you know, this is not good news for you. If you're put together, you got it all figured out, you're sturdy, 
you're strong, you're wealthy, you're stable, you got a firm foundation. You don't need somebody who's gentle with bruised reeds. What's a bruised reed? He could have used a lot of illustrations. He used the grass that breaks off out there that's kind of like a cracked piece of grass. Somebody so gentle that he could take that piece of grass and do it well. So if you got life figured out, you're not looking for some gentle suffering servant. But if you are this, a bruised reed or a faintly burning wick, this is good news. There's some bruised reeds in here. And there's some faintly burning wicks. You're like, I got a little fire, but it's not much. And I don't know how much longer it's going to last. Isaiah would say, hey, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Meaning he will right every wrong, including in your life. This is the suffering servant. I have good news for you, Redemption Gateway. There is a God out there who brings victory for the surrounded, transformation for the worms, and provision for the thirsty. And he especially wants you to hear this, bruised reeds and faintly burning wicks, that he's for you, and he will not forsake you. And Jesus Christ is God, the Father's gift to you, that you did not deserve, that I did not deserve, that we do not deserve. And he's here, and Isaiah's bringing him into the picture for the first time. And the first picture we get is a picture none of us expected, but it's what all of us need. We don't want a God that deals other than that with us. We need a gentle and lowly God. I want to finish with Isaiah keeps talking, but here's how Isaiah now talks to Jesus. So this is how God describes the gift of Jesus in verse 6 of 42. This is the gift we have. Because this gentle, lowly, suffering servant comes. Let's hear God the Father speak to Jesus. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness, verse 6. And I will take you by the hand and keep you. And I will give you, Jesus, as a covenant for the people. A light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison for those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. And that is my name. And my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to any carved idols. Behold, redemption gateway, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Isaiah, thank you for telling us this. This is good news. Amen? Let's pray together. God be with us. Our city right now is an interesting picture of just life with there's a lot of lights and splash and money and resources and hype that will be gone in a nanosecond. And the pain and the bruised reeds and the fire that's burning out, the sadness and the suffering and the sinners need some hope that lasts. So God, I pray that these images that Isaiah painted long ago through his poetry would stick with us. And those of us that are clinging to idols would at least be aware of how silly it is. And those of us who need a reminder of the good news would be reminded that you take worms and you bring them into victory and you give them what they need. And God, as a church, may we always be built on the surprising truth of the gospel that Christ 
is who we all needed. He is who none of us expected or wanted, but he's here and he's ours by faith. And what a gift. Lord, we love you so much. Thanks for this time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.